and one and two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Joe Powell. He is the deputy CEO at the Open Government Partnership, a global organization founded in 2011 that brings together reformers in government and civil society to co-create two-year action plans to help make open government and open data a reality. The OGP features 78 countries as members, plus a growing number of local governments and thousands of civil society organizations, which in total represent more than 2 billion people. Hello, Joe, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Richard. Good to be with you. All right. So today we're going to be doing a couple of things. The first will be my interview with Joe, and then Joe will answer questions from our mailbag. So let's get right to it. Joe, can you give us an overview on how COVID-19 has affected the open government movement internationally, especially as it deals with the global South, Eastern Europe, and Asia? Yeah, thanks, Richard. I'm, it's, um, it's actually been in a funny way, quite an inspiring period, as well as a really challenging one, of course, for many people um, who have been directly affected. And, and, but the reason I say that is because, you know, so many people that we work with, whether reformers in government or civil society, are really problem solvers, right? So they've jumped in in their country uh, and they've taken it upon themselves to be part of the response and recovery to, to, to COVID-19. Um, so just to give you one example, um, one of the first things that we realized um, at the Open Government Partnership was um, that people were coming up with really fast solutions to specific COVID-19 related problems they had in their country. Um, so we opened up a, a channel for people to, to submit what they were doing, basically a crowdsourcing effort. Um, and we've done this in the past with, you know, moderate um, interest and enthusiasm. Um, but we've now, <laughs> we're now at over 300 of these examples. Um, and interestingly, many of them came from civil society as well as government. So this is not just governments doing a show and tell of, uh, look how great our portal is where we've put all our, our health data or, uh, or this kind of, um, let's say, an AI uh, to, to respond to people's questions about uh, where they can get tested and so on. And some of the really interesting things governments have done. It was also about civil society saying, this is where we're involved in mutual aid efforts at the local level. Um, this is how we are actually tackling disinformation online um, and really playing a central role in the response. Um, so, of course, you know, when you look country by country, it can be a gloomier picture depending on where you are. And there are some really concerning countries, of course. But overall, uh, I've been incredibly inspired by how the open government movement has responded. That's great. And, and in some instances, though, has it curtailed it in any way, shape or form? For sure. I mean, we, um, we're tracking very closely uh, where we have seen, unfortunately, uh, some more authoritarian leaders um, take, if you like, the opportunity of the pandemic 
mm-hmm. uh, to further entrench their their rule. And and you know some of the most extreme cases your listeners are probably aware of in Hungary, President Orbán is now effectively ruling by decree. Um, in other places, in in Tanzania, for example, uh, the president is completely denying the presence of COVID nineteen and putting his citizens at extreme risk. And civil society are having to step in and fill that breach. Um, so, if you look across um, our member countries, those seventy-eight countries, the tracking that we're doing with our partners um, shows that about half of them have restricted freedom of assembly. And now, you may say, fair enough, people can't gather in the same way they were they used to be able to. And there's a clear public health reason for that. So, when we see something like that, that statistic, you think, okay, for now. We'll keep an eye on it, and in, as long as it rolls back in the future and there's proper oversight, maybe that's necessary. But 15 of our countries have actually restricted right to information or access to information laws. And if you look at that, it's far harder to think that there's a public health justification for why that might happen. And actually, in many cases, access to information right now is one of the key instruments in the, that the open government community has to actually help shine a light on, on whether it's health data or modeling that scientists are doing or ensuring, for example, that contracts um, that many countries are signing very rapidly with very little oversight actually can see the light of day. And if you look at, you know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and some of the state contracts that U.S. states have signed are, are just extraordinary, whether it's price gouging, whether it was companies that were created three weeks ago and had no capacity to deliver on that healthcare equipment that was part of that contract. And the way in which reporters in the US are tackling that is often using access to information laws to get hold of those contracts and then do their reporting. Um, so I think those restrictions on civic space, on civil liberties, on civil society are happening and, and they're really short-sighted and many, in many cases may actually harm the response to the pandemic. We had Lindsay Marchessault from the Open Contracting Partnership as a guest uh, uh, about a month ago. It was, and she she pretty much reiterated a lot of things that you said. It's this is a real real thing that's happening right now, and a potentially a real future threat. Which leads me a little bit to my next question for you, which is: many of the guests that we've had on the, on the podcast seem to agree that there's a lot of different ways this could go, but there's we can sort of go the dystopian, sort of sci-fi. Elysium, sort of Hunger Games kind of route, like this is a slippery slope here. Or like you were saying a little bit earlier, this could be like for many open government and open data practitioners, this is an opportunity because governments are forced to change. They're, they're, they need to adapt. And I'd like to have your sort of observation or your thoughts on this perspective. Well, I think if you look back, let's say to the last decade or so of Certainly, you know, when OGP is coming up for its 10th anniversary next year. And when it was started with President Obama and all that political firepower at the start, you know, the way that he put it was that open government is about ensuring government serves its citizens rather than the other way around. Yeah. Very simple proposition that people can understand. But of course, there is a risk as well that open government is somehow seen as a you know, a kind of optional extra, something to do when we have time and resources. And I know many of our our friends who work in government on these issues find it often very hard to convince their colleagues in other departments and ministries that they should prioritize this. And what we've been trying to do through OGP is show that actually 
open government is simply a tool to doing public policy better, public service delivery better, improving the experience citizens have from their government and the opportunities they have to participate. So I think when you have a crisis like this um, and the value of open government, at least from our perspective, is so clear, whether it's in the procurement example I mentioned, but let's take another one. Massive economic stimulus and bailout programs that almost every country in the world is now undertaking, whether those are funded by taxpayers or in a developing country context, they may be funded by the international financial institutions or donors. Now, that money that we're raising, you know, taking on additional debt, it's absolutely vital that is spent well and that citizens have trust that that is spent well. And how do you do that? Well, you do it through open spending open contracting, and empowering citizens and civil society to follow the money. Um, so if, if we're to do the, the, re the recovery phase in that way, um, then I do see an opportunity, if you like, for the values and principles of openness to be much more embedded in our societies in the future. And you've just given me the perfect segue because you recently hosted an online campaign called the Open Response and Open Recovery Digital Platform. How did it go? Well, so the campaign, um, Open Response, Open Recovery, its goal is, is simple in a way. It's to it, try and ensure that open government approaches are part of our different countries' response and recovery. And the way we launched it last week with a digital forum was to take uh, five key topics, um, many of which we've already mentioned, but you could also mention digital, um, a lot of controversy over contract tracing, how to do that well, how to protect privacy and so on. So we had five, we covered five topics. We had over 1500 participants from all over the world, uh, which really showed the diversity, I think, of the movement. And I, what came out of that was, um, firstly, really practical sharing of how different countries are approaching the, the response and recovery. So to give you an example, the former prime minister of New Zealand joined Helen Clark. Um, and New Zealand is one of the countries that's attempted to eradicate COVID-19. Um, of course, they have particular geographical and so on uh, <laughs> advantages to doing that that other countries may not have in the same way. But what she talked about was the importance of strong public communications, of trust, of proactive disclosure of information, of honesty and humility in how the government was responding to it. Um, so that was one angle. But we also had the one of the ministers from Korea, another country that has uh, been seen to do well in tackling the pandemic. And he talked about um, some of the ways in which they were using open data, public-private partnerships to get procurement of PPE in, into the right places quickly and testing. Um, and of course, there may be elements of the Korea response or the New Zealand response that won't be applicable in Canada or in the UK or the US or, or anywhere. But it's trying to find those lessons. That's, I think, what we were trying to do last week. Pull them out, share them, and allow reformers in their context to then adapt them and use them for, for their country's response. Um, so that's the spirit behind the campaign. Were there any lessons in particular that came out of it that you found particularly enlightening or like, more people need to know this, that, that caught your attention? Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a really um, inspiring week. I mean, one of the examples, actually not from an OGP country, but from Taiwan, that was um, I found particularly inspiring, uh, was the way in which the government quickly worked with 
uh, civic technologists and developers uh, to come up with a way um, to help citizens identify where they could buy masks, um, where, where uh, um, cleaning materials were available, where health um, protective equipment was available. And they did that in collaboration with technologists. So this wasn't government just saying, oh, no, we know best, we're going to do this. But they actually knew that they needed to bring those skills in. Um, and then they trusted people to, to use that information in a, in a sensible way. So what you didn't see in Taiwan was these massive shortages because people were reassured that the pipeline was okay, that, the, that they could get stuff if they needed it. And that just helped to build trust in the response, which I thought was really interesting. Imagine if we had that for toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have, have had those shortages. And yeah. Why people thought that was going to be a particular issue, <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. Um, I'm going to bring it back a little bit serious now a little bit. This is something that is particularly dear to me. So one of the problems that the coronavirus has profiled is a digital divide, mm. right? For, for example, many nations are now going to have to rely heavily on digital tools to create their, their newest action plan for 2022. And that means that a lot of people could be potentially disenfranchised from the process. And not only that, like, even like, at least in Canada, many people rely on libraries to have access to the internet and, and things of that nature. But what are some of the solutions that either the OGP or other nations are, are considering to help bridge that digital divide? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, firstly, we should acknowledge that, you know, inclusion broadly in OGP has been a challenge. Uh, we know that in many places, the forum where government and civil society comes together can be rather biased towards elite capital-based organizations, people that have the, um, the time and the resources to participate. So we were already dealing with that as a pre-existing challenge. And I think one of the things that, to, to, to the credit of, of organizations in Canada and the government of Canada really pushed in OGP was this inclusion lens. Now, of course, this is, if you like, with many things with the coronavirus, the way I see it is pre-existing inequalities are then accelerated. Um, and we've talked about some of them with civic space. We've talked about some of them with, uh, with developing countries and resources for healthcare and inequality. And I see, this, I see this issue as one of those. So people that were previously offline, as you mentioned, will be further disenfranchised if we suddenly take all participation processes, processes and put them online. Yeah, at the same time, we don't just want to stop. You know, it's not as simple as saying, um, let's all come back in a year or 18 months when, fingers crossed, there's a vaccine and, and people can go back to some degree of normality. Um, so I think the, the, the nuanced way to approach this, and it's not easy, is to be really intentional in the design to ensure that you have elongated timelines so you don't rush things, um, to ensure, as you said, that you know, one of the interesting things I, I heard about what's happening in Canada is some of those libraries that people go to for Wi-Fi, they're actually extending it to parking lots. So at least people can come and get, get online if they need it. So doing it in a way that's in collaboration with some of those people that were trying to bridge the digital divide in the past is also really important. And then we need to get smarter about how we use these digital tools. And, you know, one example of something quite simple that we had in actually one of our Subnational members in East Africa was using, uh, they ran some of their consultation uh, on WhatsApp. 
And obviously that is a oh. that is a, a, a lower tech solution that can reach people with a phone. Of course, not everybody has a phone, not everyone has the the money to have data access all the time, but it's certainly more inclusive than saying that you need to join, let's say, a Zoom call or a Blue Jeans call or or whatever. So I think the it's it's inevitably going to be a pick and mix approach. Um, and the intentional design at the front end, I think, is is what we're going through right now. And, and as OGP, one thing that we're hoping to do as a kind of offer to the community is, is just come up with a, a package of tools that we think work um, with examples of how they might be relevant in an OGP context. Uh, and we'll be putting that online in the next few weeks for people to, to use. Oh, that's great. And, and real quick, uh, I remember you mentioned something that was an aha moment. I hate to use that kind of language a little bit, but when I first got into the open government and the, and the open data space, and shortly after, or right around the inception of the open government partnership, being a Toronto-based, Canada-based, I had no context internationally. And when I learned that in a lot of, especially sort of you know African countries and, and third world countries, they rely heavily on SMS. Mm-hmm. Text message is a huge part of their society and their culture for, for government and its, its people. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it. And if almost if we design solutions for the lowest technical level, then you almost satisfy all the needs that you, you require. So uh, along those lines, you used to be a senior policy and advocacy manager for the One Campaign, which is a not-for-profit whose goal is to end extreme poverty. And if there's anything that COVID-19 has done is put a giant magnifying glass on socioeconomic inequality. But many of us listening right now, for at least for my audience, we, we know the words, but we don't truly understand the impact of what those m- words mean and how COVID-19 has made it even worse. Can you take a few moments and make it real for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the one campaign had its its mission, uh, eradication of extreme poverty. Um, and its its DNA was to do that um, as a justice issue and an equity issue, not as a charity issue. And I think that's the right way to look at it. Um, so, you know, in a COVID-19 context, to give you one concrete example from, from an OGP country, in Kenya, um, when the COVID-19 pandemic had started, um, many people in the media and so on were saying, this is a rich person's disease. You know, this is rich Kenyans coming from abroad who are contracting the coronavirus and bringing it back to Kenya. Um, why are we shutting down our economy when there are people, you know, 10% of the world lives on less than $1.25 a day, but there are people who are on the breadline who cannot afford or even consider having physical distancing, if you're living in Kibera, which is Nairobi's largest slum, that's simply impossible. Um, so you're asking people essentially who are right on the breadline to be sacrificing their source of income or food, their ability to look after their kids, people that have no savings whatsoever. Um, and you're saying that you can't go to work because this virus that rich Kenyans were bringing in, or that was the, um, that was the kind of way it was being seen. Now, fast forward, and this is the tragedy, of course, fast forward a few weeks, um, and it's within the Kibera slums where um, the virus is, is now taking hold at a much more rapid rate. And it's people that can afford physical distancing, um, who live in, in bigger properties and so on, who can afford to stay out of work for a few weeks. 
are are safer. Um, and it's the people who were who are most affected are the ones who who were living in this in extreme poverty. And just to the further, you know, inequality of this, or if you like, the the thing that I think it's important for us all to be aware, the UN estimate that for the humanitarian costs of the pandemic um, and the associated recessionary effects on people living in poverty, they they estimate they need about 90 billion US dollars for that. Now, that may seem like a lot, but that is less than 1% of the stimulus packages that wealthy countries have already mobilized. Uh, you know, so it just puts it in context. Um, and I think the the thing I'm really worried about as well is is OGP ambassador is actually Ngozi Okonjo-Iweo, who's the former finance minister for Nigeria. She's leading with the World Health Organization the efforts around vaccine de- development and deployment. And she's been talking about this a lot. How you get the vaccine to people in extreme poverty um, is is going to has a huge number of challenges, right? Let alone just procuring enough vaccines and making them, but just how you actually get those vaccines to people living off-grid, in the informal economy, often uncounted, undocumented, refugees. You know, these are people that are already hard to reach and the vaccine reaching them is the only way that everyone will be safe in the long run. Um, but how we do that is is really, really difficult and it requires a multilateral approach um, that I think so far we haven't seen uh, um, enough of. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, and this is simply curiosity. I don't even know if, if you have the knowledge for this question, but I need to ask the question. You're talking about vaccines a little bit here and bringing it to impoverished nations, especially in the impoverished regions of those nations. How do those communities view vaccination as a whole? Obviously, in Western societies, there's a large anti-vax movement. And I'm here, and I'm not here to debate that right now, but I'm curious to know, is there a strong opposition towards vaccination in, in a lot of these countries? Like, would it be welcome even if they were, if we were to go there with them? Well, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, Richard, which is it's ultimately about trust. Um, and the, this is where the importance of community health workers is so crucial. People that can go door to door, that can answer people's concerns, can explain how the vaccine um, can help them and, and help their kids. Um, and, you know, tragically, we know the importance of this from previous um, incidents. So I, I don't know if you're familiar, but one of the, um, one of the repercussions of the um, raids in Pakistan on Osama bin Laden was that community health workers that were administering polio vaccinations and rural Pakistan and rural Nigeria, one of the I think the only two countries where polio is still present, and this has been a big priority of the Gates Foundation to, to eradicate polio. But those health workers, there was an effort by um, the CIA essentially to, to use some of those health workers to gather intelligence. And when that was uncovered, it obviously completely backfired because suddenly community health workers became targets um, and polio began to spike again because people were not getting their vaccines. Now, that's the most extreme example you can imagine. Um, but the last thing we want to happen right now is the, the reliable sources of information, like community health workers, are undermined. Um, whereas at the same time, and this is where I'm, I have really significant concerns, um, is the amount of political disinformation 
um, and vaccines being only one of many topics that this applies to, which is just on steroids right now in this pandemic. Um, so I'm really curious to see how the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Google and others, um, who've, again, <laughs> we keep going back to this theme, we had a problem before, this problem has been accelerated. You know, we need proper regulation of the platform companies, including to tackle this disinformation issue um, in a way that if we don't do it, it won't just be trust and division in, in developed countries that, it, that, that gets worse. It will also be that people's lives will be at stake. It's, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. I know Twitter recently announced, I don't know if they've officially implemented it, that they're going to tag misinformation, even if it comes from figures of authority and um, without naming names here. <laughs> uh, but, but at the same time, I remember reading a while back that it would be great if Twitter also was able to identify bots, mm -hmm. right? Are you actually speaking to a real person or is just a, another bot? And I had a conversation with someone about this, a Canadian uh, futurist by the name of Jesse Hirsch. And was like, it seems like a good idea at first, but I'm more concerned about the, the false positives. Right, because that could land, that could go into completely different of of a slippery slope. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to share, or yeah, I mean, of, of course there are the anonymization of um, or the ability to be anonymous. I should say online um, has been very empowering for activists in authoritarian contexts, and you know, historically, of course, the Arab Spring was the example of that when it first broke through. Um, so it's not, again, it's, I see a lot of false choices being pushed around in this, in this COVID response, you know, privacy on the one hand or health on the other is a completely false choice. And similarly, I think it's a false choice to, for the platforms to say on the one hand, you know, everyone's identity will be public. On the other hand, we'll have to live with this political disinformation. I, I mean, these are very smart people. They've very successfully monetize these platforms and monetize people's data. I don't think it's beyond the realms of, of their intelligence to uh, either invest more in the human capacity to deal with this, which requires significant investment and time, of course, but they could do that. And we know that, you know, for example, in the um, in dealing with the use of Facebook with, with the Rohingya in, in Burma, they did eventually invest more in having human moderators that were able to deal with that content. Now, of course, doing that at huge scale is a, is a big challenge, but this is part of their, their social responsibility. Okay, so we got to start thinking about wrapping up my part of the interview and moving on to the mailbag. Uh, but there's one last question I want to ask you, and that deals with uh, the future of the Open Government Partnership. And I was lucky enough to attend the, the summit in Ottawa in 2019. And I remember personally being moved by the incoming chairs of the OGP and their vision for the OGP. And if I recall correctly, they seem to be much more focused on action and results. And I remember them saying things like, we want to make drastic changes. I might be remembering wrong. I'm perfectly willing to, uh, to acknowledge that. But can you tell us a little bit about their vision and maybe if perhaps even their vision has been affected by the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the co-chairs of OGP right now are the governments of Argentina um, and Robin Hodes, who works with the B team, a group of private sector leaders. 
And I think what they were saying is, um, firstly, they had some themes they were really interested in pushing further. Um, so, for example, um, they wanted to take an open state approach. Um, so bringing in, for example, justices and the judiciary, uh, local government, um, other accountability institutions, and really broaden OGP out from what the equivalent of the Treasury Board in Canada would be in, in other countries. And I think that is really, really welcome. Um, again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You don't want OG open government to be a silo in one part of government. You want it to be something that's in the DNA across the entire state. So I think that is a big push and, and one that um, I think we can continue to work on even with the pandemic context. Um, we will actually be doing a, a new round of recruitment of local and subnational governments um, in the coming months. So as you know, Ontario is, was one of the pilot members of that, but we'll be opening up for a much bigger round. Um, so I would encourage uh, people working in, in local and subnational and provincial government in Canada to, to consider that. There, another theme that they wanted to focus on was anti-corruption. And I think here, the, the real push on, on the partnership was, let's go beyond just open data commitments on anti-corruption. It's great we're publishing contracts. It's great we're publishing um, expenses and assets and budget information. But let's actually have a discussion about real accountability for how that's used. Um, how are we actually tracking beneficial owners to tax havens and, and, and camping down on them? Um, and again, in this pandemic context, I thought it was really interesting to see your prime minister talk about uh, bailouts for companies in tax havens. And I know that you know the detail of, of whether that is up to scratch or not much better than I do. Um, but at least it was on the political agenda in a way that um, you know, perhaps wasn't as, as, as high level before. So, so actually going deeper on anti-corruption, pushing into accountability, I think is another um, place that OGP needs to do a lot more. Um, and then on gender and inclusion, um, you know, I, again, to, uh, to go deeper on this, um, to ensure that the, the platforms or the forum uh, where government and civil society come together in OGP is much more inclusive, um, that we're taking into consideration the gender dimensions of all of all open government policies, not just ones related to gender pay data, for example. Um, but let's say you have a new access to information law. Who's accessing it? What, you know, is it, is it, are there gender dimensions to that? Are there racial dimensions to that? Um, I think that's, um, that's, that's another area that OGP can and should do a lot more. And then finally on civic space and the role of civil society. Um, I think that it's another thing they put firmly on the agenda and, you know, again, it's a mixed picture. Um, in, in some countries, we have an incredible collaboration between reformers in government and civil society, tackling problems together, um, analyzing challenges together, uh, coming up with solutions, and even co-implementing policies together, which is something I find really interesting. Um, and in other, in other countries, they're shut out, um, and they don't even have a seat at the table. Um, so, you know, I would love to see stronger political leadership on that issue um, because I, I hate to say it, but the, there just has been a vacuum of political leadership on the values of openness, democracy, um, civil society in the, in the past few years. And many of the traditional champions of that issue have either been distracted or they've had other priorities. Uh, so one of my hopes is with, um, with the governments of Argentina, 
the government of Korea, the next co-chair of OGP with Canada and, and, and Germany and France and, and others, that we could see a renewed push on real political leadership on, on open government internationally. Well, that'd be definitely great to see because, you know, we definitely need that, that, that safety net for a lot of the, the practitioners to, to, we need the marketing behind it. If Justin Trudeau gets behind it, then that helps spread the message and the gospel to a certain extent. So we have only about 15 minutes left into this interview, and I want to get to our mailbag questions. And I think a lot of these questions you sort of answered, but I, I, won't, I would be remiss if I didn't read out the question as it has been given to us. So the first one comes, and I apologize if I pronounced the last name incorrectly, uh, Gerald Wolves, who is uh, with the Pan-African Capital Group, LLC. And his question is, could you please discuss the different challenges and benefits in regards to openness, transparency, partnership between a centralized and decentralized disaster crisis response, in this case, obviously, COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question from, from Gerald. I, I think, as we were saying, the, the way I look at this is, you know, two dimensions, um, especially in a, in a more in a low income setting. Um, the first is, you know, the, these resources that are coming in, financial resources to tackle, to tackle um, the pandemic, we have to be able to follow the money. So I don't necessarily see it as centralized, decentralized. But when you have, let's say, international an international aid package that's agreed, that should be entirely open. You know, what's the, what are the amounts? What are they for? Um, if there are conditions on the loan or the grant, what are they? Then as they flow through the national treasury, they similarly need to be open. What contracts have been, um, are being procured? What companies are going to provide those services? And then as they get down to the local level, you know, how are those local governments? Are those resources actually showing up? So one of the things I've been really excited about is uh, an initiative that the UN Economic Commission for Africa has been working on and, and we're helping with, is could we have a network of grassroots civil society activists and monitors to actually follow that money down, down to the local level? Are those medical supplies showing up? You know, providing local social accountability and tracking. I think that would be a very interesting, if you like, decentralized civil society driven effort to complement these big financial packages that are that are coming in the um and and this is my fault and i apologize for this there was a second part to this question which was i'm particularly interested in your thoughts as it relates to countries and governments with weaker institutions for example liberia he says and how to hold those institutions accountable in a time of crisis i think you kind of hit on that a little bit but i wanted to again honor the question and give you the opportunity. Sure. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is, you know, accountability. I I don't see this as a necessarily something that breaks down on a developed or developing country basis. I mean, you know, even today, the day we're recording this podcast, Richard, the you know the senator who is chair of the intelligence committee in the U.S. has had to temporarily step down. Um, because he was using allegedly information from a private briefing um, to sell off his stock portfolio. You know, yeah. that, that is accountability. That is use <laughs> of information that should have been public um, in, in the United States, let alone the example of, of Liberia. Um, so I think, you know, I, I agree with the kind of um, the, the thread of this question that um, if we don't have 
accountability for the all the different dimensions of the response and recovery um then fundamentally will just it will just be a weaker response and recovery so i i go back to these kind of core principles of open government let's not just make this about transparency or or participation but let's that harder edge of accountability must be part of the response Aiden Ayakuze, the executive director of Twawiza East Africa, and I once again, I apologize if the pronunciation is off. He asks, where across the partnership, the open government partnership, are you seeing the most enthusiastic uptake of open response and open recovery initiatives? And why those places in particular, do you think? Well, the campaign is, is just getting up and running. So I, I think in many countries, we are starting to see uh, specific ideas of how to integrate this open response open recovery framework into the national response um so to give you an example in nigeria the civil society coalition called the open alliance um that is the if you like the counterpart to to the government there on ogp um they are putting together you know a mini manifesto or a set of asks of how they would like to see their country's ogp commitments adapted to this current context and that that i'm sure will include many of the things we've talked about in this in this podcast uh, in argentina civil society have done a similar thing they've written an open letter to the government um, about exactly this um and there are also many co- governments who are, are coming to us and and asking for you know thought partnership and ideas and connections of of how they can actually integrate open government um i you know a lot of these discussions are, are are ongoing and we'll yet to see you know what really takes off but um in south africa for example um one of their big challenges um that that they were interested in discussing um is uh, how do you how do you ensure the inclusion of for example people in the informal economy um so many countries have these uh, wage protection schemes and the government's part paying salaries um but if you're in the informal economy um you don't have a contract and employer in the same way that is a big exclusion risk in your response and and again it, the way that links to open government is do we even can, can, do we even know who these people are you know do they have access to information about what they're entitled to um do they know the law can so that they can then access and, and shape the law um so again these things are going to look very different from country to country uh I'd love to know in Canada what what you guys are thinking I you know I heard a few weeks ago Melanie Robert and Rob Davidson talking about some of the ideas on on your show um and I think it would be really interesting to see in you know in the Canadian context also how this open response open recovery frame might might play out We only have a few more minutes left and I want to get to as many of these mailbags as possible because Aiden has a second question which is can you give us an example of where civil society is taking the lead in the open response and open recovery initiative and what we can learn from those examples well um, aiden is a, is a good friend and his uh, his organization i i he, maybe he's too modest to put this in the, <laughs> his organization is actually a great example of that so just to share with your listeners twaweza is based in tanzania um and as i mentioned earlier the president of tanzania has been in real total denial about the pandemic um so what aidens organization and a few others have done is they've actually had to lead a public information campaign um about the risks of of transmission 
the importance of, of physical and social distancing, of wearing masks, of whatever the solutions that are most appropriate to Tanzania are. Um, so I think his organization is, is a great example. Um, the other one, again, not an OGP country, but I, I've certainly been really inspired by, uh, is in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong is you know, a, a short distance from Wuhan and yet has seen very low COVID-19 cases and fatalities, um, despite the fact that the government initially was really downplaying um, the pandemic. And interestingly there, a lot of the leaders of the protest movement who have been campaigning for democratic rights in Hong Kong, they took it upon themselves, again, to help lead the country's response. They took it upon themselves to launch a website with all of the information about, about supplies, about the data around cases, hotspots within the city, all the things that people wanted to know. And this is, I think, a key point for the future is, you know, I'm always very cautious about instrumentalizing civil society. And what I mean by that is saying that civil society becomes an arm of government. It delivers services and so on. Now, of course, civil society can do that and should in some cases do that, as long as it's not sacrificing its accountability part of its role as well. So I think if you, when you bring those two together, civil society can show its value to citizens. That is, could be a really important way of building trust in civil society as well as in government. Um, but at the same time, doesn't start censoring itself. Um, uh, so I, that, that's the sweet spot, I think. Okay. Um, I think we have time maybe for just one more question. And this one's anonymous. And it asks, is there new energy in, in, in contributing to open source projects in light of the digital nations commitment? Well, I think, I mean, the digital nations, obviously, prior to the, um, this is a group of uh, advanced digital nations who, who have been pushing on open source for some time. Um, I think one of the criteria to be part of this digital nations club is you have to be a member of OGP. Um, and Canada has a commitment in its action plan related to open source. So I don't know if, if specifically that institution, I don't I know how they've responded, um, but I can say Again, going back to the crowdsourcing effort that we did as OGP, if you look through those 300 plus examples, many of them are open source efforts. Um, and there's one that came from, from Spain that has now been used in a number of Latin American countries, including Mexico, which is a way for civil society to um, organize the resources that they're making available to citizens and, and to really, really participate, as you said, to jump in and be part of the response. Um, and that's, that's a simple open source platform that then people have been able to customize for their country. You know, I'm, I'm a really big believer in open source. You know, of course, there'll be a lot of attention on whether these contact tracing apps that a number of countries are thinking about, whether we have access to the code behind that. I think that's essential. That could be another angle for maybe the Digital Nations group to, to work on. Um, so I hope there is energy behind it. All right. So we're, we need to wrap up here. And I want to thank you, Joe, for being so insightful and open with your answers. Uh, there's a lot more coming out of the OGP and we're very excited and we're glad that uh, you guys have taken a very proactive approach in, in resolving this. So, so thank you for joining us today and sharing that. Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah, it's a great conversation. And uh, I want to thank our audience for listening as usual. And please leave us a rating or a comment on how we can make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.